We want to turn to Lamentations chapter 4. A couple weeks ago, we started a new series called Learning to Lament, and looking at the book of Lamentations, looking at the Psalms, and looking at this really this very, very valuable and important ancient um, process of walking through grief uh, with the Lord. And I think there's a lot to glean here. I think there's a lot for us to learn from this. And so I hope that it's, it's being helpful to you. And we want to press in that a little bit harder this morning. And in Lamentations chapter 4, Jeremiah is going to take us kind of to a new place here in Lament and dealing with idolatry and idols of the heart. And so this morning I've entitled the message, The Heart of Idolatry and the Help of God. So processing this, you know, over the last like six years, um, I don't know about you, but I have felt increasingly like an exile in our country. Um, I have noticed more and more, it seems like every voting day, that um, I have this rise up in me and I don't like it. Um, I am becoming more and more aware how unsettling it is that the majority of our country seems to be opposed to my Christian faith and to my beliefs and to what the Lord is is laying in front of me, um, and just to kind of give you some examples of what I'm talking about, you know, over just the last six years, I think sometimes we lose track of time, but over just the last six years has been legalized in all 50 states. Uh, marijuana use has been legalized in 18 states. Many states are trying to push abortion laws closer and closer to the time of birth, um, and even in just this last year, We had 10 states in our country that completely outlawed or shut down churches for a series of time during COVID. Um, And the list could go on. And let me just be clear for a moment. What I'm talking about here is not a shift in American politics. That's not what I'm concerned about. What I'm concerned about is a shift in America's worldview which is much, much, much more important. How we view and think about God, how that impacts our lives, how that sets our trajectory as a people and as a country. And so, as we look at this, I know I'm not the only one feeling this way. Um, I think there are a lot of Christians in our country today who are feeling more and more like exiles as they're starting to witness this uncoupling of American culture from Christian ethics and morality. For a lot of years, we've enjoyed living in a country that was somehow, in some way, even though not officially, but culturally tied to the ethics and morality of the Christian faith. And we're just seeing that that's becoming less and less the case. And so I know a lot of Christians are, are this is unsettling. It's, it's scary. It's worrisome. Is they get angry about it. It's pretty obvious if you look at social media posts or uh, family divisions or just public outbursts. All these things are happening. And so I started asking this question. If, if this is the case, if this is what is happening around us, why is it bothering us so much? Why are we reacting like this if we truly claim and believe that we worship and follow and belong to the King of Kings more so than to anything else on this earth? I think it's because most of us don't know how to live as exiles. We've never had to do that. 
We don't have that experience of having to walk out our faith in the midst of a culture that doesn't embrace it. So we're having to start to learn what that looks like. But if we look throughout church history, living as exiles has actually been the norm in most places. We've been one of the few exceptions. That most of the time, following Christ meant that you didn't live in a country or a culture that was for you or embraced you or supported that in any way. And now it seems like it might be our turn to walk that road. It's another reason that I love the book of Lamentations. Because it speaks directly into this issue. It shows us how Jerusalem weathered through this change in their culture to deal with it, and I think it can be super helpful to us. I've mentioned several times Mark Brogop in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. I grew tremendously in this study of lament, of lament through that book. And so in that book he says this, Lamentations mourns the effects of suffering on a society, but not simply because of the loss. It is a memorial to the futility of trusting in anything but God. Pain and suffering in our lives, when that comes, it often has a way of exposing idols in our hearts. It, it, it's, it's got this thing where it, it shows us the things that we had been trusting more than we were trusting God. For example, let me, let me lose you a little illustration. I've got this jar of water this morning. I want you to pretend that this jar is your life. This represents your life. Okay? It's got water in it. It's got a little bit of sediment here at the bottom. And for the most part, as long as the, the jar remains at peace, undisturbed, right, without any major issues going on, it looks like this. But a few bumps, a little bit of turning upside down, a little bit of shaking in our lives, and all of a sudden... It doesn't look quite so pure anymore, does it? Because the sediment gets stirred up. That's what happens when pain and suffering comes into our lives. It bumps us. It jars us. It turns our lives upside down. And it starts to reveal some things that we didn't know were there. Or maybe we had chosen to forgot, forget we're there. Or we had kind of pushed down because there weren't really an issue at the moment. But suffering and pain and struggle, lament, has a way of stirring up idols that were previously laying dormant in our heart and our lives. And so lament gives us an opportunity to deal with those idols in those moments of pain and struggle. You know... Suddenly, when you're pressed with pain and, and grief in your life, fear and pride and covetousness and self-sufficiency, they all get stirred up and they come back to the surface and they start fighting for position in our heart again because they're being challenged, because they're being threatened in some way by some outside force. But I think it's important to understand that most of the time, suffering doesn't necessarily create new sin or idols. It just stirs up the ones that were already there. 
I think sometimes we can get into this blame game of, well, I wouldn't act like this, I wouldn't say this, I wouldn't do this if this hadn't happened to me. Most likely that didn't cause this. It just revealed what was already lurking underneath the surface. But nonetheless, lament is super helpful in this because it shines a light on the things in which we have put too much hope, too much trust, too much of ourselves into those things rather than trusting in the Lord. And it gives us an opportunity to correct that. So today, as we look through this passage of chapter 4, I want to show you that lament displaces the idols of my heart with the grace of God. That when pain stirs up the sin, when it stirs up the idols, it gives me a chance, lament comes in and gives me a chance to, to replace those idols with grace from the Lord. So look with me at verse 1, chapter 4. It says, How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Point number one is this. Suffering surfaces idols. The phrase there, holy stones lie scattered, is referring to the great temple there in Jerusalem. We've talked about this a little bit already, but you know, the temple was the, the, the pinnacle point of Israel. Right? It, was, it was their beloved, sacred, powerful temple, and now it's destroyed. It's gone. It, it lies in ashes. It's scattered across the ground, as it says here in the text. And the reason that was such a a heart issue, the reason that was such a problem for them is because the temple was their monument of power and wealth and position and security. After all, it was God's house, right? If we have God's house in our city, like then obviously we're good, right? God is with us and and we can rest easy. But once it was destroyed, once it was scattered, it revealed that they had actually come to trust more in the house of God than in God himself. They'd made an idol out of what was supposed to be the place where they went to worship the one true God. And now it was gone. And once it was ripped away, it made it even more clear that it had become an idol in their lives. When I use this word idol, I'm going to be using that a lot today, so maybe we need to do a little groundwork there. <laughs> Idols in the Old Testament were uh, primarily objects that people worshipped or trusted in more than they trusted in God. Right? They, could be, uh, they oftentimes were representations of other gods, like statues or, or temples or altars. But really, anything could become an idol, even God's own house in this example if you were trusting in it more than you were trusting in God. Today, in our culture, we don't usually worship statues or idols like that anymore, but idolatry is still very much alive and well in the human heart. And so an idol today is anything that we value as more important to us than God is. Sometimes it's kind of hard to see those things, 
because we kind of just get used to doing life the way we do it and thinking the way we think and living the way we live. And so one of the truest tests of an idol, the way you really know when something has become an idol in your heart and your life is how you respond when it's taken away. When you lose it. Does it cause some sadness and some sorrow because you lost something that you loved? Or does it send you into despair? Unconsolable. Beside yourself, I don't know how I'm going to go on without this. Tim Keller, another pastor, wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, which is all about idolatry. And he makes this statement in the book. He says, sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Right? That's normal. Like when you lose something that's good in your life, it's normal to have sorrow over that. It says, but despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When we lose something that is penultimate in our lives, it can send us into this tailspin, and that is a clear sign that it had become an idol. And so when we go back to the jar here, it's still looking kind of murky. It's still trying to find a settlement again here. But when suffering bumps our lives and it stirs up all these different kinds of idols that were lying dormant, the grief and the despair can just compound on itself. And that is when we need lament to purify the water of our lives and our hearts. Lament confesses and mourns the idols that suffering brings to the surface. When pain stirs up that stuff in your heart, lament is God's opportunity He's giving you to mourn that sin, to turn from those idols, to confess to the Lord the things that were not right so that He can correct them. So, suffering surfaces idols, and then we're going to spend the rest of the chapter looking at, point number two, idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. Jeremiah's going to give us a list here of idols that were present in Jerusalem that surfaced as a result of their pain and their destruction. And here's the thing that I've learned about idols. Idols of the heart, they don't really change. We wrestle with the same ones today that they wrestled with back then. They've been the same throughout all of human history. They might look a little bit different. They might have a little bit different, you know, paint on them or have a little bit different uh, approach, but it's usually the same set of heart idols that we're still struggling with today. And so let's look at these today. Let's see if God might want to reveal some things in our hearts, in our lives, that we need to lament, that we need to mourn as a result of um, following him. So... Go back to verse 1. We're going to look at the first idol of financial security. Financial security is idol number one. It says, How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. So he starts off with gold. Right? The gold has grown dim. And again, he's, he's referencing here primarily the gold of the temple. If you know anything about the temple, it was covered in gold. There was gold everywhere. There was gold on the walls. There was gold on the altars. There was gold utensils. They stored gold in the storerooms. Like, it was the 
the center and it represented all this gold and all these precious metals. They represented the glory of God among his people. But now the temple lies in rubble and all the gold is gone. It's been taken away. It's been stolen. All their wealth, all their glory is gone. And this became a major issue. The reason Jeremiah is highlighting it here is because the people's hearts sank when they realized we don't have that anymore. Because money oftentimes fuels self-sufficiency. And it can create in us this idol of security. That if I just have enough, then I, I know I'm good. I know my life is safe. I know I'm, I, I'm okay. I'll, I'll be all right. We start to put our hope and our trust in that rather than in the Lord. And it can be very subtle. It can be one of those things where we just we find success in, in business or whatever, in work, and, and we start to have an influx of, of, of cash, and so it just becomes very comfortable in that. It can look like having lot, always having to have lots of nice things around us. It can look like even a secure future. Like, I'm just being responsible. I'm making sure that we have a good retirement set up so we can, you know, have all of our days of leisure at the end of our life. And, and none of those things are necessarily bad, but what happens when a major loss comes in your financial security? What happens when you lose that job and all of a sudden the income isn't there like it used to be? Or a recession hits and things start to get dicey in the month to month. We can't buy the stuff we used to buy. Or stocks dip and the 401k is not looking so hot anymore. What happens when we lose our cushion, our stability, our future plans? How do we respond to that? How, who do we turn to in those moments? Oftentimes that can reveal an idol of financial security in our hearts if that type of loss sends us into a tailspin. This can look lots of different ways, though. When, I remember when Courtney and I first got married, um, I took on the job of paying the bills. Right? Like I was man of the house, so that's what I'm supposed to do. And so I started paying the bills. Um, but I was always super cranky about it. Like I just, I don't know if anybody else has that problem, but like I just, I hated paying bills. There was something about like seeing all that money go out and, and like not ever having quite the, the number in the savings account that I wanted to see. And, and it just made me in a bad mood all the time. And so for both of our sakes, <laughs> um, Courtney took it over. But here's the thing. We, we both had good paying jobs, right? Like we were out of college, both had good paying jobs. We had no kids yet, low bills, like there, there really weren't any money problems, but it didn't matter because I had this idol of financial security in my heart that I always had to have more. It always had to look like this if I felt like we were going to have enough to be secure. So several years later, fast forward, and we decided to go into full-time ministry. And we go from two incomes to one income, and that income went down. And all of a sudden, we were having to live really, really tight for several years. And it was during those years that God really started to break me, in many ways, of this idol of financial security. Because he started showing up over and over and over again and providing for us just when we needed it. 
And even though the math never seemed to quite work out on paper, we always had what we needed. We never went without. God was always there providing for us. And so I started to learn, like, I can trust him more than I can trust the bank account. A few years later, Courtney ends up getting sick with cancer. She can no longer do that. She's just not in the cards. And so I take it back over, right? So I start paying the bills again, which I still don't like paying the bills. <laughs> but it's a completely different experience now. It doesn't stress me out. I don't, I don't worry about it because I know that God has got us. He's proven it too many times. And so what I've learned through this is that sometimes God has to take away all that we have in order to take away our idol of financial security so that we learn to trust in Him rather than anything else. So the first idol that we see here is financial security. There's a second one, though. The second idol that we see from in the text here is human saviors. Human saviors. Look at me at verse 2. It says, The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of the potter's hands. So we see the first thing here, this, this sons of Zion phrase is talking about the next generation, right? Those who are going to be coming up in the people of Israel and Judah, and they were the hope of the future, right? Like they were the ones who were going to lead out. They were the ones who were going to take care of their parents. They were the ones who were going to make the, everything keep going well and smooth. And they had all this hope in this coming generation of the sons of Zion. They were as fine as gold, but now they're nothing. They're earthen pots. They've all become destitute, and they're all laying in ashes and and the hope that they were going to bring is gone. Skip down to verse 5. We see another one. It says, Those who feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace the ash heaps. In other words, those who were once the top affluent leaders who were, had all the fine dining and all the fine clothes, and they were the ones who we looked to to have hope that one day that might be us and we, we're going to be okay. Now they're homeless. And they're dumpster diving to survive in the ash heaps. Verse 7. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. That, I know that's a little strange for us. Like today in our culture, you know, tan is the cool thing. Uh, back then that was not the case, right? If you were tan back then, that means you worked in the fields, which meant you were poor. If you were rich, you were inside and your skin was white, okay? Or at least lighter, uh, depending on uh, your ethnicity, obviously. So, this is a good thing, but now it says their bodies were more ruddy than coral. Their beauty of their form was like sapphire. But now, verse 8, now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. In other words, once the, the bold and beautiful celebrities, the, the influencers, if you will, they're now emaciated and deformed. They're they're nothing to look at anymore. But then it gets worse. Look at verse 20. It says, the breath, of their nostril, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. The Lord's anointed was their, their title for the king. 
God's chosen king that he had put in place to lead Israel. Their hope of, 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 a, of a strong nation was in the king. But now he's captured. If we do a little bit more reading in God's word, we find the story about this. When the Babylonians came in, they captured, they arrested King Zedekiah. But before they carried him off into exile, they brought every one of his children in front of him and murdered them. And then gouged out his eyes, so that was the last memory that he had for the rest of his life. The king was gone. Their leader that they had followed, they had trusted in, that they had hoped in, was gone. So now what? And this reveals the great danger in putting too much of our hope in human leaders. Human leaders are not bad. God uses them in lots of different ways. But we have to remember that human leadership is limited. Human institutions and systems are frail. And they can never hold up under the weight of all of our greatest hopes and needs and desires. They can't fulfill that for us. Our deliverer is not on the Supreme Court. He is not in the White House. He is not at the top of the Forbes list. Only God can do that. Only He can be our Savior. At the end of the day, He is the only one who is worthy of our hope. This doesn't just go for big public figures and you know, upfront kind of leaders. We can do this even in small ways with close friends and family. Um, myself, like most men, I'm naturally a fixer. Right? Like if there's a problem, I want to fix it. And early on in our marriage, um, I wanted to fix every problem that Courtney had. Right? With her friends, with her family, at work, at the house, whatever it was. I was like, just tell me the problem. I'll tell you the solution. And then we're good, right? Like, we'll just keep moving forward. And um, there were two problems with that. First of all, um, she didn't need or want me to be the fixer all the time. Sometimes she just wanted or needed me to be the listener, um, which was a hard lesson to learn. But the second problem was actually worse. And that's the fact that there were some problems of hers that I couldn't fix. See, sometimes we have problems where we're wrestling with pain or sin or struggle in our hearts, and, and I couldn't touch that for her. I, I, I can't fix her heart. Only God can do that. I can pray, I can support, but ultimately God is the only one who has the ability to save us, to fix us. I was trying in a weird way to be a human savior to her, but only God can do that. And so whether we're looking for one or whether we're trying to be one, it's going to fall and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be bad. We can make really good friends and family members and workers and bosses. We can do all that well. We make really bad gods. 
And so we need to let God do that. So human saviors is the second idol that we see pop up in our lives sometimes. The third one we see here in the text is cultural comfort. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes, sometimes pain and suffering is so severe that it completely changes the society, the culture. Right? We saw that for America back like in the time of the Great Depression or in the time of the Great War. Like There were major shifts in the way our culture and our society functioned because the pain was so far-reaching and so severe in so many ways. That's what Jerusalem's experiencing here. We see evidence of that in verse 3. It says, Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. What he's saying there is that in, in, in desperation, they were so desperate to just survive that mothers started refusing to even nurse their infant babies. They were becoming worse than wild animals. Verse 4 goes on. It says, The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. They had deteriorated to this idea of, of every man for himself. Right? No compassion, no sacrifice, no help. Just survive. Go down to verse 9. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. They're saying, we would rather die by the sword. We would rather go down in battle than live like this. In this suffering, in this pain, in this struggle. The suffering was so intense, it had overwhelmed any semblance of normal life. Compassion was gone. Relationships were dysfunctional. The fabric of society had literally been broken. And all the comforts that they had known of living in that society, in that culture, they were gone. All the, the nice things that they used to have, all the, the things they used to enjoy that insulated them from the pain of other places, of other people, of other nations... All that's gone, and all they have left is their own suffering and pain. When I think about this for us, I think about that, you know, many of us in our church, many of us in this room, we live pretty comfortable. Many of us live in suburbs or in at least affluent, more affluent parts of the city. And it can sometimes cause us, our, our comfort level can sometimes cause us to ignore and insulate ourselves from the pain of other people. From the pain of others that are suffering around us in various ways. Our comfortable, stable, peaceful, safe lives can give us a disregard for, the, for cultural sin and cultural problems that are right in our own backyard. Jerusalem didn't get here overnight. You understand that, right? Like It wasn't like one day they woke up and everybody was sinful and then God destroyed the city. This was decades and decades, generations of sinful cultural problems being ignored to get here. And so I just think about for us, like, what is that today? And I think about things like abortion. 2,400 babies a day are aborted in America. 
60 million babies have been murdered since the passage of Roe v. Wade in the United States. Not the world. In the United States. And here in Missouri, there is only one abortion clinic in our entire state, and it is less than 10 miles from our church building. Are we mourning and lamenting that cultural sin? Or are we insulating ourselves to ignore it? I think about human trafficking. Sometimes we think that that's like a a problem in other countries or maybe on the West Coast or the East Coast. But did you know that Missouri has the eighth highest rate of human trafficking in all the United States? Fifty states. We're number eight. St. Louis is one of the top 20 trafficking destinations in the country. That means that hundreds of people, hundreds of Missourians are enslaved every year. And many more, our major cities of our state are hubs in their nightmare. Are we even aware of that? Are we in any way thinking and praying and lamenting what breaks the heart of God? We can even just look like right here in our city, just the the toxic division. St. Louis is one of the most divided cities in all of the country. Along wealth lines, along lines of race and sexuality, and it breeds hate and marginalization for thousands of people who are made in God's image. And this is just the short list. There are a plethora of social challenges around us that hurts the heart of God. Things like generational poverty, divorce, teenage pregnancy, racism, unemployment, drug addiction, These are ongoing pains and problems and struggles in our own backyard. But many of us, myself included some days, are too comfortable to acknowledge all of this as our society unravels before our very eyes. And I have these conversations with people, and they're like, well, but I understand, Micah, but, but what can I do? Right? Like, I'm one person, I can't, I, I'm not, I can't do this, I can't do that. Like, I, I don't have those opportunities, I don't have those abilities, I don't see those people. Lament. If nothing else, lament gives us the opportunity first to repent of our own calloused hearts towards the sin of our world. And then also to mourn the pain of our neighbors, of our city, of our God, as he looks at these sins and these struggles. We can step in instead of continuing to just float along in our idol of cultural comfort where nothing rocks the boat and we don't have to think about it and life's always happy-go-lucky. So the third idol is cultural comfort. The fourth 
idol that we see here is spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders. So this major breakdown in the society of Jerusalem has now exposed the fake spirituality of their religious leaders. Look at verse 13. It says, This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So rather than calling the people to confession, rather than calling the people to repent of their sins and turn, the spiritual leaders, the prophets, the priests, they were complicit in the moral and spiritual decay of the society. The blood was on their hands because they were doing nothing to correct it. It goes on in verse 14. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. The spiritual leaders who were supposed to be leading the charge are now the compromisers who are just wandering blind defiled themselves. They say in verse 15, away, unclean. People cried at them, away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. And here's the worst part, verse 16, the Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Those who were supposed to be holy were unclean. Those who were supposed to be worthy became dishonorable and despised by God himself. The people had put so much hope and trust in these are the spiritual leaders. If they say we're good, then we're good. The problem was the spiritual leaders weren't good with God, but walking in sin themselves. Unfortunately, to our shame, the list of fallen spiritual leaders in our country in the last decade is legion. And those are just the ones that you hear about on the news because they had a big church. It doesn't even talk about the ones that come from all the small churches of 100 and 200 people across the country. And when we look at those cases, the reasons for their failure, the reasons that they fall, vary greatly, right? They're, they're all different stories. They're all different situations. But as I've looked at it, I've, there seems to be one common thread through all these spiritual leaders who have, who have fallen in some way. At some point in their ministry, they stopped walking alongside their people with humility and repentance, they started believing their own press. They started believing that, that they were different, that they were higher, that they were better in some way because God had given them this position and therefore they had the favor of God more than everyone else. They fed into this idol worship of the people, allowing themselves to be elevated beyond their position. And they started trying to play God to the people they were supposed to shepherd for God. And in the midst of that, they disqualified themselves from ministry. 
Now, just to be clear, their sin is on them, right? Like, we're all accountable for our own sin. But I have to wonder, I have to think, like, are there some ways that we as the church, as the people of God, have fed into propping them up in those positions? I believe the answer is yes. And if that's the case, we also need to mourn and lament our part in that process. We need to repent and lament of making idols out of spiritual leaders. The last one, number five, the last one we see here in the text is presumed favor. Presumed favor starts in verse six. It says, For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Now, the language here is important because he's, he uses this word, this title of the daughter of my people, right? He's, he's using this, this familial language because the assumption is that the daughter will always be treated better than the outsider, right? Family comes first. Family gets extra favor just off the cuff. The problem is her pride was also greater. And therefore her punishment was too. Greater than Sodom, he says. Like that's severe. Look at verse 11. He says, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Verse 18. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. No longer would God allow his people to take his grace for granted. That had been their story for too long. If they would not receive it humbly as a gift, then they would not receive it at all. They had presumed upon the favor of God for too long. And now they had lost it. Friends, we have to remember, God doesn't owe us anything. We have not earned God's favor we have not in any way proven ourselves that this is something that we can expect from Him. The only thing He owes us is wrath and hell for our sin. And so any grace or favor He gives is a gift of His mercy. And we should receive it as such. Optimism. Optimism has long been the, the spirit of America, right? Like, we, we thrive on this idea that there, there's always a better tomorrow on the horizon, right? The sun will come out tomorrow, right? We have this idea that, that yeah, things are bad, but they're going to turn around and we're going to get on top again because, after all, 
we're America. Right? That's where we belong. That's our position. And personally, just be honest, I kind of love that. <laughs> I love that spirit of optimism because it creates so much opportunity as it rallies the people forward. But I also fear that for many Christians, this has become one of those hidden idols. At the bottom of the jar that gets stirred up anytime things don't turn around like we thought they were going to. And I think what makes it worse for Christians is that for many it's become rooted in this idea that because we are Americans, we are blessed by God. We presume that we get the favor of God because of where we live. And perhaps it's just this type of presumed favor that makes us so unsettled and so unnerved when we see this growing status as exiles in our country. But here's what I know from God's word and from church history. That Christianity has always survived and even thrived through cultures that were hostile to the things of God. To cultures that were crumbling around them in the sin of the world. That's where Christianity was birthed. That's where it grew the fastest and the most. But in order for that to be our story here again, we have to learn to lament. We have to lament the idol of presumed favor and the idea that God should always provide us with a pain-free life and a, and a, a, a good culture that congratulates and applauds our faith. He never promises us that. He does not owe that to us. But if we will keep our eyes on him, no matter what comes, he will be faithful to his bride. So we have these five idols that Jeremiah highlights for Jerusalem that I think are very strong parallels to what we are seeing in our culture and in our, in our lives today. So, so what do we do? What do we do with the, all these idols when we face pain, when we face lament? Where do we turn once they're roused back to the surface? That comes in verse 22. He ends like this. He says, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. Point number three is this, the help of God. That's the only answer to our pain, to our struggle, to our idols, to our sin. The only answer we have is the help of God. Right here he says that the suffering and the punishment of the Lord, that it has an end. That if we will turn back to God, if we will turn to him in repentance, 
we will turn away from our idols and our sin, that it will be accomplished and it will have an end. You see, God doesn't take joy in our discipline, and he will not discipline us any longer than is necessary to turn us back to himself, to turn us from our idols and our sin. That's the purpose. He wants to expose, he wants to remove the idols from our lives, and lament gives us the tools that we need to come and to meet him in that process. Lament mourns our sin and moves us to God's grace. Puts us in the right perspective again. This is the the beauty of the gospel. That God has given us a way out. A way out of sin. A way out of suffering through His Son, Jesus Christ. Our sin, our Our rebellion, it separates us from God. It creates this chasm between us that we can't get over, we can't fix, we can't, there's nothing, we cannot do enough good stuff to make up for the sin that we have done against a holy God. And so now, our only only option, our only opportunity is God's grace. And in God's grace, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live a perfect and sinless life. And then to go and to sacrifice himself for us. And he went to the cross and he died on that cross for our sins. For our idols. For all the things that we hold more dearly than we hold him. He said, I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to make a way out for you. And he stood as a substitute in our place. And he died for our sin. And then he went to the grave. And three days later, he rose back to life. He said, I'm God. I'm your Savior. Come, turn from your sin. Believe in me. And you will be saved. From sin, from suffering. You can have hope again. Hope of a future free from all of that. Will you come to Jesus today and let him cleanse you of your sin, pull you from your spiritual exile? Some of you, you've never made that decision. You've never yet decided to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for salvation. Do it today. Right now. For those of you who have already given your life to Christ and been saved, there's still an ongoing process of repentance that's required as he reveals idols and sin in our lives. So the same goes for us. Lament displaces the idols of my heart with the grace of God. It's an exchange when we come, when we repent, when we turn to him, he takes it, our idols away, he takes our sin away, and he showers us with his grace through the Holy Spirit. So I just want to end like this today. What, what hidden idols has suffering stirred up in your heart recently? What's he revealed? Has 
has, has the financial setbacks of COVID or the, the current inflation, is that rocking your idol of financial security? Is money tight? Are things getting rough and you're freaking out? Are you living in an, in an emotionally empty marriage? And the one person that you thought was your hope for a good life and a happy life doesn't seem to really be there or be connected, and you're struggling with this idol of a human savior that's not what you thought it was going to be? Is the assault of the new culture and the new norms and the changing climate, is that rocking your comfort? I don't like this. I don't want to live like this. This isn't what I signed up for. Maybe you've been betrayed by a spiritual mentor or a leader who was supposed to have your best, who was supposed to be the one that you could follow, and they fell. And it's crushed your faith. You don't know where to turn from here. Maybe you need to come and to give that idol back to the Lord. Maybe you've had a job loss. You don't know what to do now. Like that's that was my whole world. That's who I was. I was the guy who did that. And this idol of pride is welling up in your heart. Maybe you've had the death of a loved one that sent you into just this flood of regret because you held on to an idol of unforgiveness with that person for all those years and now you wish you could do something about it. Or parents, maybe you have that one rebellious child that's just blowing up your picture of a perfect family and you need to repent of that idol of image. I could go on and on and on. Like there's, The list is as long and wide as there are people in this room. But whatever it is for you, God says, come. He says, come to me. Come to me in lament. Come to me in prayer. Come to me in repentance. And let me change your heart. Let me rid you of that. Let me free you from the pain and the struggle and the heartache of trusting in something more than you trust in me. So this is our next step, church. If we're really going to learn what it means to lament, if we're really going to walk in this, our next step is to mourn the idols of our heart so the Lord can fill us with his grace. So we're going to open up the altar this morning. I want you to invite you to come. I know you can pray right there in your chair, and God hears you there. He does. But I can tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is something about coming before the Lord, forward, kneeling down and letting him do a work in your heart. It's different. So if you've got something that God's pushing on you right now, you've got the Holy Spirit that's pressing on some idol or sin or struggle in your life, today is the day to come lay it down. I'm going to pray. The band's going to sing. But I want to 
invite you, come. Come and pray. Seek the Lord today. Let him do a work. Let him do a new thing in your heart today. Will you stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning, God, and we confess. Lord, we confess before you today that we are so undeserving of your love. We are so undeserving of your grace. And Father, we know that our heart has idols that need to be removed. Whether we've been following you for one day or for 10 years or 50 years, God, there's always something new that you're showing us, something, Lord, that we need to, we need to give back to you. So God, we lament today. We lament our sin and we ask, Lord, for your grace to come and to wash us clean. Lord, set us free today. Move in our hearts right here, right now. God, come. Meet us at this altar. Help us to give all of this back to you. We pray all this in Christ's name.